All right, so hi everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Geography, Life and Data or the GLAD podcast as we're hoping to call it because it's now superseding what was once the Spatial Analytics and Data or SAD seminar and interview series. Um, and this is our very first time recording uh, an entire episode of the GLAD podcast. And so I hope you'll stick with us as we sort of work through uh, the trials and tribulations of figuring this out. We're also recording on Zoom and remotely, uh, which is not the way that we're hoping to work in the future. So forgive us if uh, on top of our inexperience with podcasting, we also have to deal with the intricacies of Zoom. So today we're here to talk about um, what came before, before we sort of launch into an entire new series of activities. And what we wanted to talk about today were the SAD interviews, which were a really important component of the online SAD seminar series that started in 2020 and ran all the way up through the end of last year in 2022. I'm Rachel Franklin. I'm your sort of main host for today because we're going to be talking about the SAD dinner party, but I'm joined by Levi Wolf at Bristol University and Danny Arribas-Bell from Liverpool and the Alan Turing Institute. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Danny, just to say something about the interviews. Like, where did this idea come from and what did you want from it? I don't know exactly where it came from. It's one of those things that, like, almost everything in history is really hard. Everything that matters is really hard to pinpoint on a specific moment. And this is no exception. But a couple of thoughts on that. I think, one, I've always been a big fan of podcasts that are interviews or long conversations, so long form where you have for an hour or even more, just drilling down into a conversation with someone. And sometimes they're very focused and sometimes they're more wondering. And, and I like both. I've always liked both a lot. So that's one something that I always had in the back of my mind, that it would be really cool if someone interviewed these people that you know had a long conversation with with people like Mike Batty or Helen Kuklelius, or the sort of big names of the field of spatial analytics. And it so just happened that the ac historical accident was that it ended up being us. But I think there was an element that I just wanted someone to interview these people and see what they would say on a on a conversation. And it's fun to try out new things. I think we're yeah. really set in stones in in academia. You you express your ideas. You were supposed to be very creative when it comes to ideas, but then how we express them, they're supposed to go either on a talk or on a paper or on a talk and a paper. And that's about the combinations that you can make. So the the idea of, of having it in a more relaxed way, covering things that you would almost never read on a paper, you would almost never read on a on a book, or you, you wouldn't know unless you had had a beer with these people effectively, which I hadn't with most of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, was really appealing. So when when the SAD started as seminars and the opportunity came, I figured this is the the once in a lifetime chance I have to to make this happen. And I'm really glad both of you jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, and and it fit really well. And I think part of it was that Levi and Art Levi and I had already spent a fair amount of time thinking about spatial analytics and data, the seminar series, and sort of what we wanted from that. And we had some practice working together. And I don't know, Levi, do you want to talk about yeah. how we started SAD? I mean, it was one of these things I think sure where I given the way that everything was going from the pandemic, there was kind of a gap in the the discourse of people being able to present at uh, departmental seminars, going to conferences, everything felt really disconnected. So I remember 
you know, all the way back to being a graduate student, these international methods colloquiums put on by the um, Society for Political Methodology. And I thought it was a really cool thing to get an international community of people all interested in the same broad topics together about every month to listen to someone from the community talk about something that they're doing. And it's a bit more innovative than a departmental seminar where it's kind of knitting together a group of people that kind of have a external reason of being there, right? Um, it's, it's really kind of an association of the willing. So Rachel, I think we were chatting on Twitter at some point talking about what to do, why it felt so disconnected and what we could do about it. And I think you asked, is anybody up for it? And I said, yeah, sure, definitely, let's do it. Um, so we ran that, I think for about a year, maybe two until the interview idea came out. Um, as I recall at a annual meeting for the quantitative methods research group at a Royal Association of Geographers conference. As I suppose I should have also given the, the other context of how the interviews came, um, at the time, both Levi and I were part of the QMRG of the Royal Geographical Society, the Quant Methods Group. And on October 2019, we had got a bit of funding from them to do events on at the intersection of geography and data science. And the idea was to reach out to the Alan Turing Institute and do a bit of um, <clears throat> joint activities. Activities being mostly meeting in person, either at the <laughs> Turing or at the Royal Geographical Society. So. The plan was that the spring 2020 was when things were going to happen. And alas, the world had different plans for us. So that got put in the back burner. And this idea of interviews started percolating. And it felt like it felt a better way of getting to that goal than trying to directly move the plan of doing something in a room with the static electrics of being in a room to take it into an, another Zoom call. Yeah. And I think too, at the end of the seminars, one of my favorite parts, and I, I think it might have been yours too, Rachel, was on an online seminar, you only get so many questions at the end of it, but you still have about 15, 20 minutes to talk with the speaker. So many of my favorite seminars were ones where we kind of did just talk with the speaker in almost an interview conversational format where you know the audience had some questions, but really we were just chatting about the research and about the person's thoughts about various topics. So I know that it felt like a natural extension of us playing with that form. Yeah, I think so. There are a few things that I thought were great about SAD 2020 and 2021 and 2022. One of them was they're the, over. Oh yeah, <laughs> the fact that they're over, and also that that the the germination of the original idea really was a Twitter conversation, and just like first of all riffing on like how to build community um, in unusual times, the pandemic, but also I could totally remember just being like I if I had a seminar series, I would definitely call it spatial analytics and data, so that it could be sad. Uh, and that, of course, I've been very attached to every year. Um, I've wanted to. I've wanted it to be sad. But the other thing that I think is a little bit interesting is that both you, Levi, and you, Danny, listened to podcasts. And from the very beginning, especially with the interviews, there was this this discussion: should this be in audio format? Should this be a podcast? And I was really resistant because I didn't feel comfortable. I felt like I had just mastered the Zoom framework and that already felt a little bit soul bearing. We're recording today on video also. So I can look at my face if I, if I look at the camera. Um, and it's I still find that a little bit uncomfortable. And it turns out I think I'm going to be more comfortable with the microphone. But it's interesting that we've come full circle now. Here we are with the GLAD podcast, no longer sad. 
But that leads me a little bit to the interviews because we also had to negotiate the structure of the interviews. And we knew that there were three of us and there was going to be one interviewee. Um, and so we had a lot of discussion at the beginning about how this should be organized because we didn't want to have sort of a pile on where all three of us were all at once on Zoom asking questions. It was going to have to be structured in such a way that the person who was answering questions knew who whom they were speaking to in the moment, um, but that we all felt like we were equal participants in the interview process. And so we landed on sort of a tripartite structure where each of us had about 15 minutes with each interviewee. And because my, my part was the third part and sort of the reason why we're here today, I think I might turn to both of you first, just for a sense of like, what your your each of your 15 minute pieces were like and also sort of how we handled that interview um structure and process from the outset i don't know sure levi I mean, you, I... levi <laughs> you used to you used to launch us off so indeed how'd you yeah. do it so i i am always fascinated by the the personal stories of how people get interested in what they do and and kind of the trajectories for different you know why did you stay at that institution for so long and then bounce out to another place because i think there are there are stories that we tell about our careers that are kind of just so stories. They they make sense in kind of a after the fact rationalization, but it's never that clear when it's happening. And you know, in a job talk or in a CV, we present that just so story, but there's not really a space for us to talk about how did it feel to you know move countries or to leave the discipline that you always were interested in to go to something else because a good job was in a different place you'd never been. Um, and so I really wanted to make sure those stories were told, uh, particularly by people that have these kind of particular dynamic mobile careers. It, it's fascinating to hear people's histories of decision making. You know, why did you leave Cardiff to go to New York? These kinds of questions. So I really wanted to make sure that was platformed. And it just so happened that when you're talking to someone, a great way to loosen up and start feeling a rapport is to kind of get a little bit of groundwork, understanding where they're coming from and how they kind of see their their own personal history. So I thought it was a good kind of intro segment anyway. Do you have sort of favorite people in our conversations with that sort of personal narrative and trajectory piece? I have to say Helen. <laughs> Helen Kuklelis gave a really interesting story of her whole kind of career from engaging in architecture back in Greece through to a PhD at Cambridge and then kind of the the just accidental way that everything yeah. happened for her to end up at Santa Barbara. It just was an absolutely marvelous, you know, collection of stories with an absolutely wonderful individual. I will totally cherish that uh, conversation yeah, forever. I was going to say this section to me, and I didn't anticipate it to have this, this effect on me, but after a few interviews, what became very clear and it was mostly because of this section is just how different the world is today than the world yeah. these people grew up in and yeah. and how sometimes we we look up to to big names and we try to in some ways emulate at least the first reaction is i want to do like so and so did and the realization that they lived and they grew up academically speaking in in a very different world it hadn't quite dawned on me until the this part of the interviews came in, there was and also I, not for in a good or bad way. I think it's, you know not better or worse. I think they had just as many challenges as probably people have today. But 
those challenges are so different that trying to replicate, you know, the way you get a job in the way that Mike Batty got a job or, or Helen has <laughs> got a job, it, it's just very different place to the, the world today. Yeah, and I think this will come up later on in our conversation too, but the, also the sort of how rare deliberation actually was, right? That even if you impose sort of a linearity to these trajectories, it, when people are talking about them, there's very little deliberation. There's a lot of hap happenstance and a lot of luck and a lot of sort of unexpected situations that arise that people capitalize on or are unable to capitalize on, but that sort of end up pushing them in a particular direction. I felt that way about Tristan Nelson's sort of background story mm, too. So yeah. it's not it's not only the sort of the older, uh, more established people in the field, it's also the mid-career people who have had very interesting trajectories. Her story of getting lost the first day of yeah. The yeah. university yeah. because of, she wasn't able to read the map was really, yeah. really good. Uh, but, you know, even when we talked with Mike Batty or Luke Anselin, there was still a lot of happenstance, a lot of sort of yes. accidents. Mm. Um, and so if you haven't already, if you're still listening to our very first episode of the GLAD podcast, if you haven't already checked out the sad interviews, we've got a lot of interviews on our YouTube channel, so they might be worth having a look at. So after the first 15 minutes, um, we would sort of seamlessly segue from Levi to Danny and what would you do, Danny? And I had the uh, the lucky job of being the meat in the sandwich. I was <laughs> uh, Levi, however they set us up, and I, in some ways, I always felt I had the easier hand of the interviews because I was picking the the middle ground where the interviewee was already comfortable with us and the interview was going. And the general idea of of my section was to talk about research ideas, but in a in a broad sense of the of the word not, not in the way that you could read in their papers or you could read in their books so trying to figure out how people came up with their big ideas and and why they were interested in in those what other things they were considering at the time that didn't go as big or what they thought they would be a doing if they were a phd student today rather than 40 years ago so th th those kinds of questions is what we discussed and I think originally I I don't know if I've mentioned this to you too but I I try to pick this as a way almost as getting as as least personal as possible in these <laughs> conversations I wanted to I think I was really scared to ask some of these people for very intimate things and and in some ways ironically some parts were ended up being I think very <laughs> very intimate some of the answers people gave on, on why they pick certain topics or or what they would be doing ended up being just as personal as as the the section with Rachel or or with Levi. So but but it, it came in a natural way. So I think it it scared me a bit less. Yeah, and I should say that behind the scenes, so if you've watched these interviews, I think they they more or less seem very well structured and planned. But behind the scenes we would have Skype open or WhatsApp or chat and we would be sort of constantly going back and forth to make sure that we had the balance right in terms of timing and if there are things that we wanted to circle back to. Uh, and so it was nerve wracking. I don't know how the interviewees felt, but I certainly felt like it was like getting on a roller coaster ride. And once the ride starts, you're on it because yeah. you're live yeah. um, and you're just hoping that yeah. you cover everything and that the people are comfortable and they're happy and they find this to be a good process. 
The, the best proof of this on the first interview, I remember yeah. Rachel sent us a screenshot of her Apple Watch with the <laughs> pulse going up as the interview was starting. And it's very, very clear. I, I, I don't have a, an Apple Watch, but it would have been very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that takes us to the third part of the interview. And it's interesting that you say that about how you how you thought about your middle part, Danny, because I think I had I had similar but different worries. I think I was panicked at the idea of an open-ended conversation with people and that I might be too nervous and I might freeze. And so I imposed a structure on my piece of the interview. And it was partly because I wanted something fun, but it was really because I thought if I've got a structure, then I'll know how to navigate my way through these 15 minutes. So after we would do Levi and Danny's piece, we would completely change gears to what we, what we called the sad dinner party. Um, and the sad dinner party involved homework for the people we were interviewing. We would send them um, sort of a list of questions to answer um, with a little schematic, and then they would hopefully send back the answers early, and I'd sort of go through them and think about um, what would be the most interesting questions to pick up on live. But also, a lot of times, there would be these sort of um, echoes from conversation that had already happened with Levi or Danny. So there were sort of nice openings to pick up on topics that we had started but not been able to complete. So in the end, I felt like I really needed the structure, but it, it ended up being like sort of the washing up, the washing up portion of the episode where we would make sure that we cycled back to everything we wanted to talk about. So with that said, and again, if you've seen the interviews, you know what happens. Um, but we used to say every time we would do the interviews that it would be really cool to interview each other. And part of it was that the conversations were so interesting and we did so many pre-meets with people and we'd have so, we've had so many meetings, the three of us over the last couple of years, that if we could just record some of these conversations, that it would be really neat because of course, we're also very interesting people and this process of working together has been interesting. And I always felt like, ah, the sad dinner party piece I would love to do with Danny and Levi. And so as we were discussing what the first season should look like of the GLAD podcast, we thought maybe we should do some more washing up and in a sense just clear the decks of the things that we wanted to do with the sad um, seminar and interview series so that we can start fresh with new things. And so we're going to sort of interview each other um, using the sad dinner party protocol. And I wonder, Levi, if you could sort of set the stage by outlining for our listeners what it is that we would ask our interviewees to do for this piece of the interview. For sure. So in these interviews, we would generally spend the last 15 minutes on this segment um, where we would borrow from the popular UK radio show Desert Island Discs, which asks prospective castaways to list eight records or tracks, a luxury and a book that they would take with them to the desert island of some kind. Um, so we patterned it off of that, but it was slightly different. We suggested that the interviewees would be invited to a dinner party, which we called a sad dinner party for spatial analytics and data. And when our host, Rachel, asked what the interviewee would bring, it would fall into a couple of different categories. So we asked about four people that would be invited to the dinner party. They're the only ones there, so the interviewee would have to prepare well. Um, we also asked for one book to keep the interviewee entertained in case those four people were a little bit boring. We asked about um, kind of after dinner drinks and discussion, when everybody's more comfortable and, and things have kind of moved along a little bit, um, we asked them to bring kind of one formative memory or experience from their life, not necessarily professional, could be personal, whatever they wanted to talk about. As well, in the same vein, one accident or kind of you know, fortuitous occurrence. Something could be synergistic, could be not, you know, up to them. 
we ask for one nugget of wisdom, could be something they learn, something that they kind of uh, think about for themselves, and then one regret, personal or otherwise, um, if the interviewee was willing to, to do it. So finally, we also asked uh, for kind of books, particularly spatial analytics and data books, two of them to make sure that they would be uh, able to give their perspective on the field, but then also kind of illustrate a little bit about their kind of background of their thinking. Um, and then, of course, it can't be a dinner party without food. So we asked for a main course and dessert at the that they would order at this sad dinner party. So we've gone through and we've answered these questions, um, as we would invite anybody listening to do as well. They're fun to think about and send it along. But what we might do now is kind of walk through these questions and talk a little bit about our answers and how it felt to be on the other end of the mic. So we would ask these people to send them and then they would send them usually a day or two before the, the interview. And that was one of my favorite parts yeah. of being involved in the interviews when you <laughs> yeah. get the email from the speaker yeah. and you open the, the word file that Rachel had sent with the answers that they had written. There would be this fire chat. Of, <laughs> have you seen this one? What do you think of that one? Yeah. I would have never. It was really one of the best parts. It was very fun. Did you think when I was being so rigid, because I think that's the be probably the best word for it, and when I really wanted to impose a structure on my piece of the interview, were you worried that it wasn't going to work or that it was going to be goofy or you thought it would probably be fine? I mean, I had confidence in what you were doing. I thought it made sense yeah. and you're pretty gregarious, so I didn't doubt you for a second. <laughs> uh, I was so worried, but Danny's right. I loved it when when we would get the answers and it was like opening, like looking inside someone's mind. Yeah, I think the other thing to me is that because it was this set structure, not that you would compare interviews, but it was a way of seeing how people would respond to something that we had said more upfront. Because the conversation that Levi and I would have, is, yes, we would we would guide them, but. If you look at them, I think they're they're very different across speakers. So it would be really hard to to see one from the other. They would focus on different aspects, which is what we want to get. But it was really nice to have something that they had to play by our rules rather than we playing by their rules. Yes. And I have to say that when I looked at your answers, Levi and Danny, that I had sort of the similar response because yeah, I yes. had done my homework because I also answered the questions, but I didn't want to send my answers. And I think we all three felt this way. I didn't want to send my answers before everyone else was ready to send theirs because I wanted it to feel um, as clean as possible in that I knew we would be influenced. As soon as you see how one person has decided to attack a question, you immediately question how you've approached it. And I, I wanted to avoid that. So we all over the weekend did our homework and, and answered all of these questions. Um, and I, I don't know that we have to go through question by question. In the actual sad interviews, I would sort of pick out the most interesting responses that people had. But one of the takeaways I had as I was reflecting on the entire process, both the interviews and sort of the three of us doing this work together and how I was going to digest and talk about it to you, our listeners, uh, one thing that struck me immediately was that this was a really hard homework assignment to give to people. And if you're listening, you might think, oh, a dinner party and I just have to invite four people. Well, it turns out that when you have to put this down on paper and announce who the four elected are, that that is a very difficult thing to do. And our interviewees approached it from wildly different perspectives. I should say some people invited close family members and friends 
PhD students, some people invited dead people. Um, so, so people really took it upon themselves to handle this differently. Some people didn't provide any names whatsoever. Um, but let's, let's get started. Danny, who would you invite for your sad dinner Ooh. party? I mean, just to pile on, but this was actually really hard um, <laughs> because how you pick the list, yeah, you can take it and, and you, you if you watch the interviews, which everyone should, you will see how people approach it differently. And I, I hadn't quite realized that that's because it, the question lends itself to, to very, very different interpretations. Yes. So I thought quite a, I thought a little bit about it. And in the end, I, I cheated and I picked two two dinners. I picked the, if I only had to do one dinner, it would be with people I know and I, I know like me and I definitely, I know like them. And be, uh, they don't know each other necessarily, but uh, like in a good wedding, you know that they will get along because they're all good friends with you. So I picked four people. One is David Cuartillas, who many of you might have never known of. He is one of the co-founders of a project called Arduino for open source hardware. And it's a, a little bit my geek claim of fame. So I, I do know. I actually know him before he he became a, a rock star of open source hardware, uh, because he was my scouts leader, and <laughs> I met him when yes, when I was ten years old. And he's sort of ever traveling spirit. He's really long beards, and his approach to to use technology in creative ways to make people's lives better always stuck with me. And I um. I ended up, you know, I, I don't know anything about open hardware, so that part maybe didn't rub off. But the approach of using technology as a tool that can make everyone and particularly disempowered people, people's life better is something that, that stuck with me. The second one is is my PhD supervisor, Fernando Sanz Gracia. And I, I didn't quite, I mean, I always had a really good, we're still very good friends. We always had a really good relationship, but... It's been one that with years, as I've become PhD supervisor, I've come to a little bit like with these interviews, when you sort of get to the other side of the table, you realize how good you had it and you didn't even know it. Uh, with Fernando, it was definitely like that. It, it, he was like a good technology, something that did his job, his job and got out of the way. <laughs> he was never a block and he was never a limit for anything I wanted to do, which is a lot to say because I did my PhD in economics and I did very little economics as it turns out at the end of the of my PhD. So that ability of letting someone explore their interest and and just support them and and make sure that they they know that that they can count on you but that they can also just do what they what they want is something that's reverberated with me many years after it it I finished my PhD. And there's another story that maybe will come later. The formative memory also has to do with Fernando, but I'll tell it later. And then the other two were uh, one of them known known friend of the SAD interviews, and and the other close close to one is Serge Ray, who actually had a SAD seminar, who was the person who allowed me to spend my first year in the U.S. and in many ways changed my view on on research and, and academia and. I think I wrote on the paper, I wrote something like search was the personification of many of the things I like about the U.S. academic culture. And I mean that in the best possible way. I think that there's an aspect of being creative, of being quirky and being fun about the research you do that that's much more present in the U.S. than in, in Europe and, and perhaps in the U.K. And 
search was my first contact for me with that. Um, and then the last one is is Luke, Luke Anselin, uh, who's a, who we interviewed and for whom I always thought how we would have. So Luke was my boss on my first postdoc. And I always remember the feeling leaving his office after a meeting that I had perfectly understood what he wanted us to do and that it was all very simple. Like, how did I not think about it? And then I would get to my desk read over again and realize how hard the thing actually was and how have I actually understood it. Um, but his ability to make the complex simple is something that stayed with me as a researcher and also later when I started teaching is something that I've returned to several times. Um, so that those four, I think, I know I would have a really good time. Yeah. Levi, you also chose specific people. Yeah, and I did. So I have kind of over my time, at least recently in Bristol, ever since kind of the pandemic has abated, have had a lot of really good um, days and nights out uh, with my partner in my lab. Um, <laughs> so I, I suggested that I would take four people, which are you know three of my current PhD students and my partner and have a great time. Um, like we just had everybody in our research group. So 25, 30 people over for a Lunar New Year party all crammed into my kitchen. And despite the density of all that, I spent most of it talking to those four. So I just, you know, why complicate what isn't what isn't uh, needed to be complicated? Did you feel stress about that question? Or it no, actually. <laughs> so hearing you two talk about how difficult it was to, to pick, it was it was easy for me to come up with a list. It was, um, yeah, I mean, there were other parts of this that I found challenging, but this one, no. <laughs> ah, because I felt like, um, so I did not name people. Yes. Uh, and I worked through thinking about what kinds of people would be interesting because, you know, there are some really cool dead people that I would love to ask questions of. And one of them is Jon Snow, not because of that cholera map in London, but because I just want to know, like, what the order of operations actually was, because there are so many versions of Jon Snow's impact on epidemiology and spatial yeah. analysis and geography. I just need to go talk to somebody and get the actual story. Um, and then I thought about, you know, people that uh, I've always enjoyed talking to that I now can't have dinner with. And the people that came to mind uh, were Art Geddes and Waldo Tobler. Raymond Florax is another one. They're just, you know, I think about becoming a, a mid-career or mid-life person is that you start to lose people you really care about. And we know it happens with friends and family. But when it happens in your professional life, it can also really impact you. It can it can rock your world a little bit. And so I thought about that. And then I but then my worry was, what if I can't remember all the people who've died and I'll leave somebody off the list and then I'll remember later and I'm going to feel terrible about this. So I was having a lot of anxiety, not about who the four should be at the table with me, but what it would mean to exclude someone. And I didn't want anyone to feel excluded. And then I had to acknowledge that I can talk a really big game about how much fun it would be to have four people around the table with me. But if you know me, I don't like change. I don't like anything new. And I just get really anxious if I have to make conversation with people I don't want to make conversation with. So at conferences, which is a great example of a sad dinner party, but magnified, I orchestrate pretty much all of my social interactions to ensure that I'm constantly surrounded by people that I want to be talking with. And I can be very grumpy and 
if you know me, you've probably been in the situation when I'm forced to go have a meal with people I really, really, really didn't want to have a meal with. So I completely skirted the issue just by saying that if uh, if you've ever had a conference meal with me more than once, <laughs> then, then, uh, then you are a potential contender for the sad dinner party in my books. Um, but, and you know, the thing is, it's a magical combination of people. And I think that we have this a little bit here and we have academics are so blessed because we can talk work. But what I really like is people who more or less think like me and then talking about topics that are not academic at all. I like hearing what shows people are watching, what books they're reading, how they think about challenges around mentoring students or the difficulties of publishing papers or getting grants funded, which are academic topics, but they're really about the the struggles of the job and not the content of the thing. And so when you find that group of people, hold on to them, because I think we all need to have that in our lives where we can sort of feel free to be ourselves and be idiosyncratic um, and have it not always be particularly about work. Now, the question, so I thought the question about the book that you would bring in case you got bored, this, for the most part, was kind of a like not super interesting question in, I don't think, really any of our interviews. Um, and I felt like... Yeah, hopefully I wouldn't be bored. I don't know what you guys thought yeah. about this question. What... <laughs> They're all the time thinking about who you would invite. You want to <laughs> not you... get bored. Yeah. yeah. And Levi, you were the one with the really interesting answer to this question. <laughs> so if you were to get bored, tell us a little bit about the book that you would want to have on hand. I was a big fan of, you know, epistolary books with short bits, usually written as letters or maxims kind of things. Um, and I've always been that way. I, I much prefer that format to long form novels or, you know, nonfiction books. Um, and so I, I tend to read a lot of these like private papers of some famous person. I remember the diary of Dachamir Siold was one of my favorite books uh, in my teenage years. And Dachamir Siold was one of the first, you know, uh, general secretaries of the UN, very famous person, influential for world peace, great thinker. Um, so I, I just like that kind of stuff. So I, I said that I'm currently working through um, Letters from Seneca, which is a classic kind of book of philosophy structured around letters that Seneca says uh, uh, sends to a younger Roman, I can't remember, I think Lucullus of some kind. Um, so I'm working through that right now and I'd probably bring that, but I am known for keeping a copy of Theodore Adorno's Minima Moralia in my backpack for years at a time. I've owned, I think, seven copies over the course of my life, and I've lost four, I think, to people lending it and then never getting it back because it's such a good book. Um, and I, I would probably, if I'm being honest, bring that rather than the letters, but I'm just trying <laughs> to get through the letters right now. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just one of these things. Yeah, and Danny, what did you say? I, I put a, a lot less thought into that. I. I said Never Lost Again, which is the story of Google Maps and Google Earth. Um, it's a book I read over the pandemic, and it was just a lot of fun to read. Um, it was slightly different. In some ways, it wasn't that long ago. It was the early 2000s, but in, in technology times, it was a very different time. So remembering a little bit everything that made tech exciting and, and a force for good rather than the news we read today about the technology giants was really really cool and it was just it's about maps so it's uh it's always fun <laughs> i did have a question rachel about why you might bring one thing or the other but not both 
Oh, what did you What did you say that you would? Oh, uh, well, I said I would bring a Rand McNally Road Atlas because I, you know, like that's easy if I get bored to just look at. But then I said a copy of the Economist or the New Yorker, but definitely not both. And I think as I was writing that, I was flashing back to the one period in my life when I subscribed to both. These are magazines that come every week. And unless you have a very particular kind of lifestyle, it is just really difficult to work through a weekly magazine. And so not that there's a theme developing about me, but I found it very anxiety inducing <laughs> to see magazines pile up that I needed to read. It felt like an obligation. Um, so I can do one or the other, but I'm well aware that I can that I I really can only managed to digest one. And it would probably be The Economist. I mean, I think the first time I subscribed to The Economist was like 1995. And I have been a subscriber for almost every year since, even though they often pile up. And that's because you can read about books, you can read about films, you can read about politics and economics. They've always, always, I think before, before anyone else did a good job of it covered all of the geographical regions from a sort of disparate perspective. You have to agree yeah. more or less with the economist perspective. But a thing that has surprised me over the years is that I kind of do. Like it's very yeah. rare that I disagree. Here's a pro tip about the economist. You can listen to it while you do the dishes. <laughs> ah, <but> remember. <laughs> uh, I got started with yeah. the economist. It was the the one Christmas present I've given to my dad that he really, really liked. It yeah. was the, our first subscription, yeah. and the deal was he would get the magazines and pile up in his in his room, which he's a retired man, so he actually reads through them. He has that particular lifestyle that you were referring to, <laughs> and I would listen. I would get the audio and digital, and and I've been surprised also, like Rachel, perhaps not as pleasantly, how much I tend to agree with many of their views. But I also really enjoy disagreeing with them. Yes. There are some yes. times where I'm doing the dishes and I'm like, that is so wrong. Absolutely <laughs> wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I've always, I mean, well, for the last decade, at least for The Economist, I have a game plan, like with the paper copy, I start from the very back page. So if you read The Economist, you know, the mm. back page is the obituary. obituary. So I start yes. with the obituary and then I work my way forward because then first you get the reviews of novels uh, and books. Uh, and sometimes film. And if you work for it, then you get your science and technology, which I can just sort of skim over. But basically, I don't part. I don't care about the leaders and I don't care about the letters to the editor. Uh, opinion has never been something that I really care about reading from other people, maybe because I have so much myself. Um, so The Economist, I know if I'm bored, I can always just open it up and I'll find it. I know exactly where to go and I can entertain myself. So that was the boredom thought. The New Yorker is a little bit different for me because that one is sort of flipping through and I may or may not find things that I like because I'm different from Levi. I eschew the short story. <laughs> uh, I like long form and I really like a book. But similar to you, Levi, I would reread books. So there are books that in extreme cases I would revert to, you know, books that I've read. 10 or 20 I've times in my life. Ah, yes, wow. no. This morning, so in I, fact, I cheated a little bit because I said a book I've read and uh, I probably wouldn't take it. Yeah, yeah. So this morning I was thinking about Levi's answers and I was thinking, uh, this is a similarity, I think, in that um, in moments of stress or depression or just certain stages of my life, I will pick up often an entire sort of set of books and work my way through them again and sort of yeah, enjoy them and always find something new. But I, I sense that I'm this is how this is how the interviews often ended up being difficult to squeeze into 45 minutes. Um, let's talk about formative memories and accidents and nuggets of wisdom and <laughs> regrets. So again, 
we all approach this differently. Our interviewees tend to approach these, tended to approach these differently. Uh, but I also recognized just what a big ask this was of people in the sense that we're asking for something, in many cases, discreet. We're asking for people to be, be able to identify a moment that generated a step change, right? Or a change in trajectories or something that they can pinpoint. And certainly in my case, when I thought about it, there are very few discrete moments where everything changed. And and if I were to identify them, they, they, they probably wouldn't be professional. They would be personal and big deals, right? So this was hard for me, um, but also really a really useful exercise and something that I found interesting. And when we were interviewing people, it was also where sometimes you would get these sort of windows where you would learn much more about people's backgrounds or how they ended up places than we might otherwise have gotten. Um, and so, I don't know, Levi, formative memory. <laughs> well, I, I think I kind of by way of uh, the different answers to the, the memory, the accident and the regret, I actually gave three formative, formative memories. But um, I have to say that I think that my entire worldview, most of my academic scholarship my politics were all really shaped by growing up in Tucson and in particular kind of the social geography of that town. Um, it was an extremely segregated city and kind of the class politics, the way that everything worked, it just really made me sensitive to the issues of how, you know, segregation starts and how it continues sometimes through political means, policy means, legal means. Um, the school district that I went to, Tucson Unified, uh, was under the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Um, and it was one of the few uh, school districts in the US that instead of kind of black-white segregation being the problem, it was actually white-Hispanic. Um, so I grew up with a very precise knowledge of how these kinds of segregation processes actually affect people's lives and outcomes, the schools they can go to, the friends that they can make. Um, and kind of what they see in their lives, where they go in the city. So I, I'd say like everything that came out of that, all of my interest in redistricting in neighborhoods, all of it came from that kind of three years of my childhood. Um, and I think I'm profoundly different for having that happen. So yeah, easy to select that one for me. Ah, so did you have to think much? Well, I had the other two already written, so. <laughs> uh, uh, and did you, did you find it hard? Um, I found it hard to kind of summarize in an accessible way. Um, and I still ah. feel like there's plenty of detail to provide, but you can't, you know, spend a, a weekend writing a reflective essay on, you know, the wonders of busing policy and how it felt to be, you know, in that system and seeing how it affected people. Like I just, yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm sure I can let more elegant people talk about that um, in, in better ways than I, but for me personally, I can, you know, I was very into music, so I opted into the system rather than, you know, uh, leaving it because of various reasons uh, so that I can play in a jazz band and learn more about music because I, I thought at the time I wanted to go to conservatory. So <laughs> not there, um, but just very different outcomes. Here's where I should, interject. I should interject here and say, I did actually write some essays. <laughs> my, res <laughs> my responses are so long and, and it wasn't that, um, it wasn't that they were particularly especially well thought out. It was just that I felt like I needed to get it done. And as soon as I pulled one thread, it seemed like there were other yes. threads that had to be yes. pulled. And, and things that started off as being like a small formative thing were actually like 
like stretches of years that that you know I'm going to identify with like sort of one event, but yeah. but they're all the culmination of a series of events. So I found it, I f- I found this part um, difficult. And another reason I found it difficult for all of these questions, except maybe the advice part, was that many of the more senior people that we interviewed, Mike Batty is one who really comes to mind, have had plenty of opportunity to be asked these questions. And so they've had time to think about it. They know what their answers are. Um, they've imposed a narrative that might necess- might not necessarily have been there to start with, um, or maybe it always was, but they sort of, they're able to talk about these things in a flowing way. And I felt very halting and very hesitant at trying to pull these things out of the depths of my brain and then put them on paper. I don't know if you both felt any of that. I had a bit of anxiety about selecting one. I, I've had many disconnected thoughts and many memories. With the dinner, it was the same thing. I, I If I had a dinner a week, I would have no problem picking people. Yeah. But picking just one, I think it was really tough. And I think yeah. that goes back to your point, Rachel, that that one thing you pick is the story you end up telling yourself yes. that it was, mm-hmm. even though there were 10 other stories that were probably just as likely to be told. But you, you sort of get either set on one or prefer one or 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 are asked more about one than over another. So I, I I had no problem coming up with the stories. I had problems in in narrowing them down and, yeah. and picking the one that would be and meaningful. What, what was your formative memory? So I, I didn't on the document I sent Levi and Rachel, I didn't put one. And then thinking afterwards, I don't know if it's exactly what this question is about, but something that I've returned to, and this is the point of my PhD. My PhD supervisor is a big um, classical music ne- nerd, and he always he would always whenever I, we would meet for uh, supervision, he would be listening to music. Even when I, he was my undergrad teacher and or professor, and he would always have classical music. And when I started my PhD, the first year I just read stuff. He would give me papers and books, and and we would comment them later and discuss. That was my PhD training. And pretty early on, we started adding a new part of uh, supervision, which was every week when we met for discussion, he would bring me an album, a classical music of classical music, uh, and then I would take it. This was a CD, which tells you already how old <laughs> I am. Um, and I would take it for the week. While I was doing my readings, I would listen to it. And then the week after, I would bring back the previous week. We would comment it for 10, 15 minutes and he would give me the new one. And Fernando still, he sent me last week, uh, for example, uh, now it's Spotify, which is something I'm I'm proud to have introduced him into. <laughs> um, but he still sends me, it's not every week, but he still sends me music every, every few weeks. Uh, he sent me an album and we have a back and forth email and it's one of the emails I look forward to the most and I get a lot of emails so that's maybe something to to say uh, and I think I guess I picked it as formative because there is something about establishing I think that we don't say enough that academia is about it's like an apprentice like an apprenticeship I think when you have a PhD student there's an element that is about personal personal relations with them. It is about teaching them how to be an academic, but there's a lot of that that it's easier if you get if you both get along, if you like the yeah. student, but particularly if the student likes you. And I think it's really hard sometimes to do that over obscure math or over really hard theory. So finding other ways to to connect with 
with students is, uh, this taught me that it was very important. And, and I actually don't do it with other students yet, but but the idea of picking, of the importance of connecting, I think it has stayed with me. And I also kind of like classical music now. <laughs> what was your formative memory, Rachel? Ye- yeah, I like I like your sort of analogy of sort of having lots of different choices and then the settling on one. And the one I would use is like trying on lots of different dresses and waiting to see like which dress is going to be the one that you're going to like have your your portrait in, right? The thing the thing you're going yes. to be known for forever and remembered as wearing. I'm, I'm I still haven't settled on that. And so this I found this difficult. Um, and I think. I went back last night and sort of rewrote a lot of my answers just to help clarify things in my head. And I think that one reason I was finding it difficult is that those formative years, you know, your teenage years and your your 20s, in my case, and I think in a, in, this happens to a lot of people, uh, were years when I lost parents and, and I had kids and things happened. And so I think I have avoided trying on dresses because if I try on dresses, it's like you pull these threads. But a thing that I found you know, so I think something that's definitely formative for me was that um, my parents were divorced, uh, and my dad remarried when I was was really young. So I always knew my stepmother. Uh, I think I was four, and at their wedding when they got married, and she was finishing her PhD in anthropology, but she had switched from French literature to anthropology. And my father was in graduate school studying French linguistics met my stepmother and decided that anthropology was the thing he wanted to do. And so they got married in Bloomington um, and ended up moving to New Mexico. And all of their work, my father ended up doing his PhD also at Indiana later, but all everything they did was together. I think pretty much every paper they ever wrote until my dad died was collaborative. Um, and so we talk a lot about the impact of academic you know, sort of nepo babies. And, you know, (laughs) I suppose sort of technically, you know, I have parents who are academics, but for me, you know, what it meant was that everything, like all my meals were about academic collaboration and not the pleasant stuff, the unpleasant stuff, right? Like, like my, my stepmother's last name started with a B. So discussions about who, whose name was going to come first on papers, right? When they were going to find time to go out and do field work, because the thing about anthropology is that you have to, you have to actually go out in the field. And so all of their professional decisions were sort of centered on being really close to Northern Arizona and Southern Utah, um, which, you know, and they're both dead. So I can't ask them this. But now that I, you know, I make these decisions about my life and my profession, should I apply for jobs? Should I move my family? And I think they must have wrestled with all these things. I can't ask them these things. But I'm sure it must have stung a little bit to make professional decisions that were solely based on being close to Tuba City, Arizona, because there's nothing happening around Tuba City. So that must have been difficult for them. And negotiating the partnership must have been difficult. But but one thing, even from the from my father's funeral onwards, that was interesting and struck me was that I don't think my parents cared so much about academic impact. Somehow through accidents, um, most of the work that they ended up doing was in support of unrecognized, and this is a fe- this is like a federal term in the United States government, unrecognized Native American tribes. Um, who would have no access to resources unless they could document that they that they existed, wow. that they were an actual thing. Um, and so yesterday, when I was going back through my, like everything that I was written, I was thinking, I can't 
double check. So the unre unreliable narrative piece is really tricky here, right? Like these are like the perspectives of an eight-year-old, right? Um, so it's trying to go back through and sort of piece things together. And um, that I think was really interesting. So it has clearly been formative to me. What I wrote about was just that we would go be out in Northern Arizona or Southern Utah for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time uh, without running water in a tent sometimes, uh, not in hotels, in a town, outside of a town. So we would go somewhere where there were no roads. Uh, and I can remember when my parents got their first car, which was a Subaru, and how excited my dad was that he was going to be able to like drive where there were no roads out there. <laughs> yeah. But Tuba City at the time, it's called City. It didn't have a grocery store. It didn't have anything when I was a kid. You would drive to Flagstaff, which was the closest town, which right. is still kind of a city, but then was also nothing. Uh, and so there was a lot of entertaining yourself. There was a lot of following your parents around and listening to them basically collect stories, right? Collect stories of who used which re resources and where, for how long, who was related to whom, who was, you know, who was connected, sort of documentation. And that I love. And that, so I think of it as formative because it, it is a sort of a piece of my identity that I'm sort of settling on now that I am also an academic, that I can say, I, I really like that. And I would like to be able to emulate that. Um, it hasn't been particularly coherent, but that was partly due to the, my little, my, my feelings. Uh, at the beginning um do you so accidents levi you had an excellent accident <laughs> i feel like a lot of my life has been an accident but one that i can select pretty clearly i i tend to either have a really good time or a really bad time at conferences and i remember some of my early um experience at the scientific python conference in austin every summer um were not so good um so i was trying to cheer myself up uh, I was at an after party uh, with a couple of people I didn't know. Uh, my last friend had kind of gone home. Um, so I just decided to stay out, basically flipped a coin in my head and decided that it made sense for me to kind of see if I could cheer myself up by talking to people about random stuff. And I'm not generally that type of person, but I thought it might help. So we ended up just kind of talking a little bit about where we grew up and kind of what you like about where you live. And at the time I was living in Phoenix. Um, and I didn't really like Phoenix, but I could give very good contrasts to Tucson, uh, which I loved uh, growing up. And talked a little bit about my research on redistricting and neighborhoods and things like this. Um, I guess I had quite a bit to drink, but I didn't really think that it was too much. Um, went back home, had a, had a reasonably good time, went to bed. And then... I would say probably nine or 10 months after the conference. So the conference happens in July. So I got a call sometime in March. It was a call from a recruiter at Nextdoor asking when I could start my internship. And I guess at the bar at the table was sitting an employee, an engineer from Nextdoor, which is a social media network for neighborhoods, um, and was impressed with the way that I was talking, my research. I might have had a conversation with him. I don't remember. Um, I definitely think that he had talked to another person from ASU, Phil Stevens, that was attending the conference. And Phil was uh, very, he took a shine to me, I guess, when I started. So um, I guess I passed some bar or something, got on some list, and then ended up having a month to figure out a sublet and get all my stuff into the back of a Prius and move to San Francisco. Um, after, you know, all the apartments had been taken by Facebook interns and things like this. Um, so I ended up on one of the, I think actually literally the furthest South street 
in regular San Francisco in a place called Bernal Heights, one of the roads that ends right above the, the freeway for almost all summer from, I'd say, April down into September. Uh, but it was a totally transformative experience, all because of some bits of conversation I apparently don't remember. <laughs> That's great. Can I just ask, because we're, we're thinking that we should have an episode about conferences and how to conference. So that's on our list for the first series. And I wonder, Levi, like the not liking, like when when you don't have a good time at a conference, do you know what, what it is that makes yes, it not usually. good? <laughs> oh. I know that for the scientific Python conferences, they could feel sometimes a little clickish because you'd get, yeah. um, it's, it's kind of a conference predicated on everybody who uses computers, right, in Python. But you get the kind of genetics people all together and you get the astronomy people all together. And it, it just is so kind yeah. of high school. It's juvenile, I think. Um, and I have the same problem with other kinds of conferences. Uh, so I really have to be in a bit of a mood to want to go to a conference to break through that kind of cliquish nature of the way they work. Yeah. Um, I like them more now because I think I'm better at handling it. But I know that I think SciPy 2014 and SciPy 2015 were the first two conferences I ever went to. So it was a little bit different of a time. And my advisor was Serge Ray at the time, who Danny has mentioned before. And Serge was great. All the time that I spent with Serge and his group of people, I think Danny was at both of those conferences. That was all fine. Uh, but yeah. it was kind of this other you know, situation when I was more on the edge of things that I felt um, wasn't having a good time. And, and your accident, Danny. Oh, mine also involves hair attacks. <laughs> Funny. Uh, so w when I was a PhD student in Spain, at the time it was actually relatively easy to get extra money for doing visits abroad. And this is one of the things that I think Spain did very, very well, at least at the time. So I always knew I wanted to go to the US and I particularly wanted to go to California. I wanted to, go, to have a, a year of my Californian dream. I always wanted to learn to skate, learn to surf and, and leave somewhere sunny where I would have been seen on the extreme game, the X Games or something like that when I was a teenager. So then I did my research because I couldn't say to the ministry that I wanted to go to California to learn to surf. <laughs> I did my research on, on professors that worked there on things that are, were more or less aligned. And I found this guy, Serge Ray, San Diego State University, was doing really interesting stuff on open source, spatial analysis, and quantitative geography. And it was really aligned to the some of the bits that I was doing for my PhD. So I drew up this plan, I brought it to my supervisor, and I said, I think this is the really, this is the professor I need to spend some time with to, that's gonna propel my PhD, which in turn, it ended up being true, but for the wrong, so I, we wrote him an email and said, could I please go and spend some time at your lab and, and learn uh, for a year in San Diego? And he replied 24 hours in, which was another formative experience. It's something that I, <laughs> I try to do now with when people contact for visits, because I know it, on the other end of the line, there's someone really waiting for an email back. So he replied within 24 hours. And, and I remember my supervisor called me, I was in the PhD student room and he called me like, come upstairs. So I knew it was this because he wouldn't have, he wrote the email. So I came up to his office and, and I entered and said, you're going to the US. I was like, yes, here is my Californian dream. And I said, well, I said the US, not California. <laughs> so it turns out that Serge said that I would be very happy to host you. The only minor caveat is that I'm, I'm living in San Diego for, for Tempe. Uh, Arizona, where I, I'll be joining the team of Luke Hanselin. 
So at the time, I didn't really know who Luke Antolin was, and I definitely didn't know where Tempe was. But the first thing I did was looking it up and very quickly realized that my surfing dream was was over at that moment. But at the same time, that that really was the, the moment that changed my academic career as I, as I knew it, because the ability of having both search and look on the same hallway and talking to them pretty much every week was really illuminating. And, and talk about what you were saying, Rachel, these inflection points in, in history. This is probably my one case where I can say, actually, things did change quite a bit yeah. uh, because I didn't learn to surf. <laughs> I just want to say, if, if you had had a Rand McNally Road Atlas, it would have been really easy to find out where Tempe, Arizona is. Indeed, yeah. Well, I did have this Google Maps product that was... But there's something about the Rand McNally Atlas because it's pages and you turn it and you you look at the borders of states and what is close to what. The Google Maps, I think, doesn't do for us in the same way. Yeah. That, well, but anyway. is close to very few things. Scottsdale. It's close to Scottsdale. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but it's in the middle of the desert. It is How about you, Rachel? Though. Yeah, because <laughs> yours also has something to do with Arizona. Well, yeah. Uh, well, we, we all have a link to Arizona, which I think is interesting. Um, I'm, my link is Tucson, but Levi's connected to Tucson too. This was another example where I pulled the thread and just kept going. And it, the long and short of it is that I only applied to one PhD program, and that was the University of Arizona. And because I knew Brigitte Waldorf, who I had known at Indiana and who had moved to Arizona, I had a chance of getting in. But Otherwise, I don't know who would have wanted to take me. I was home with a with a six month old baby in a new city, and really had sort of no no plan for my future. I knew that I didn't really want to get a PhD in French or in any other sort of humanities subject. So it was pure pure happenstance and people opening a door and keeping an, a door open for me. And and by people, I mean, Brigitte Waldorf is the person who opened the door, but the whole Department of Geography and Regional Development, as it was known then, um, for making space for people like me. Um, and the other sort of big lucky thing was that at that time, there were just a lot of regional scientists at Arizona, and I had no idea what regional science was. And I should say, I didn't even know what geography was. Uh, I had had no exposure to geography until I was doing my master's degree and I met Brigitte. So regional science was even a, a step beyond. But it turned out that that was a really good fit for me. And part of that is the way American universities structure the PhD. So I had several years to do coursework and get caught up. But also that there was just a lot happening because there was a there was the Western Regional Science Association. There was the Journal of Regional Science. There were PhD students who were assigned to all of these, right? Somebody who was the student editor, somebody who worked with WRSA. So that meant there were just lots of opportunities for meeting people. And that, I think, was a really big accident and it's also made me who I am. And I think it's made me who I am in a couple of ways. One is sort of the regional science quantitative human geography piece, which I don't think I would have been able to get anywhere else, not because it wasn't happening, but because they just wouldn't have wanted me. Why would Ohio State have taken me, as an example, or UC Santa Barbara? But the other thing was that very quickly I met people in regional science, and it was a time when lots of geographers still went to regional science conferences. And that, you know, in my first year as a PhD student, I met the people I still have my have my meals with at conferences, Serge Ray, Bruce Newbold, Harvey Miller, Alan Murray. And that I think was a that was that was pure that was just pure luck, right? Uh, and it has helped to give help to smooth my pathway. So I'm very grateful for it. Um, 
Yeah, let's quickly do, because I, I sense that maybe our listeners might have other things to do with their lives <laughs> than listen to us talk about ourselves. Let's, let's quickly do some wisdom. Do we have wisdom? Who knows? I know that for me, um, I because of my uh, penchant for kind of reading these books with short, pithy bits, um, I have a lot of little nuggets that always float around, little sayings and idioms and Thing. So one of my favorite ones actually comes from George Bernard Shaw's play, Man and Superman, which for a while I was also glued to. And it's, uh, you know, don't treat others the way you'd want to be treated. Their taste may not be the same. And it's kind of a recognition that, you know, not everybody wants the same things. And sometimes it's better to listen than to assume that other people are like you and want it that way. So I always like that. And I, I kind of keep that close to myself when I think about how to act. Yes, that does assume, though, that the people are actually paying attention and trying to figure out what other people want. <laughs> one would hope, right? It's an exhortation to listen before you do. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. And how about you, Danny? This one took me a long time to, to settle on one. The one I think I ended up picking, and maybe it's a counterpoint to, to yours, Rachel, later. I don't know how to phrase it, but it's about feeling comfortable being uncomfortable. This idea of trying new things that you're not good at or going to places where you don't know anyone or sort of pushing yourself a little bit. I think it's it's hard to get started, but I've got to a point now where I feel twitchy when I start getting very comfortable somewhere or, or with something. And, and I ask myself, is this really what you want to continue doing or why, why haven't you? And I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it isn't that wise after all, but I, I found it that being okay with, with being uncomfortable sometimes can, can pay off handsomely. I think that's excellent advice. If you think of advice as something you want to give to people who may be less experienced than we are in some ways, I don't want to say younger because I think experience comes in lots of different guises, but... Because we're that, young. <laughs> that, that we, yeah, well, <laughs> speak for yourself. Yeah. But... but uh, yeah, and and it and I agree. I mean, I it's something that I've really leaned into that 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 being okay with imperfection is actually a little bit more fun and rewarding sometimes than doing the things we already know we can do well. But we really have to train ourselves. My piece of advice, I don't think, sits aligns with or is even complementary to either one of yours, which was just to enjoy the ride. I, th I feel like even for us for everyone maybe, and maybe it was always this way. There's just so much pressure to get to the yeah. destination and that there is some sort of preordained destination we should all be reaching for. And and I think that it's okay to have goals, right? But I think it's also really important to enjoy the process. And that, um, you know, there's advice that we give to high school students when they're applying to universities as parents. We're supposed to re remind our children that almost all kids are happy at the university they end up at and it's and and the reason we give that advice is because most of them won't get the university that they think they wanted and they think they in their entire life they think it's an inflection point they think their entire life hinges on going to a particular university and so our job as parents is to say hey you know actually pretty much everyone's happy where they go and that's what i think about the academic journey i think that we we of course had to have this idea of like the the golden rings that we want to grasp. And I think that having those goals is really valuable, but it's the process, it's the journey, the people we meet, the the, the uncertainties, the imperfections, um, and to the extent possible to enjoy it. And, and that it, it's only going to happen one time. There are no do-overs yeah. in this life, <laughs> which I- in Do a podcast. 
Yeah. Yes. Before it's too late. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, now I think we've all had, we haven't had a lot to drink, but I think we have reached the melancholy <laughs> end, end stage of, of this episode. And so regrets, do you have regrets? I was actually really hard. And I take that as a good sign of, of my life that I, that I did. I had a hard time picking one regret. Uh, I might jump in first. And yes, do it. Real quick. I think what I ended up settling on is I've actually had many regrets over the years and none of them really matter now. <laughs> so for a long time, I regretted not doing my PhD abroad. I ended up going back to my home university because it was the easy route. Um, and for a long time, I regretted not doing my PhD in the US or in the UK or in the Netherlands. Um, I started my PhD after I spent a year in, in Sweden and I'm at peace with that because it's turned out okay in the end. Uh, but for a long time, that was a big regret I had. Another one I was thinking yesterday, and I maybe I regret a little bit still, was not having done more math in grad school, um, not doing more theoretical statistics or, or just pure statistics. Because what, what I didn't know at the time is that you never have as much time to do those things as then. And, and then if... The math I did do has been instrumental in pretty much everything I've done. So I, I've many times wondered what else I would have done if I had known more math. And I also know that the the way academic career goes, at least mine is, is very unlikely that I'll have the the time, but also the focus on the mind to to be able to to block everything else that's going around the world. Yeah. But I also sort of have come around that thinking, well, I didn't waste my time when I was doing that. I was reading other things that informed the research I did and the places where I ended up. So again, it's past regrets. I don't yeah. think I yeah. I have anything big now. You, Levi? I mean, I, I kind of have the same. There's you know, things around where I did my PhD that I, I sometimes wonder how things would be different, but I, I definitely see it more as kind of a garden of forking paths kind of thing. You can go any direction and you get somewhere anyway, but um, it's not you know, I don't really regret many things. I think there's a very clear inflection point where um, when Lou Cancelin uh, was one of my PhD advisors, he was leaving Arizona State to go to the University of Chicago and start the Center for Spatial Data Science. Um, and I was working for him at the time on a research grant about spatial multi-level modeling. And I was really enjoying that work. And he offered, you know, well, we can find you a position to either research and teach at, in the Computation Institute. How about you come with us to Chicago? And I didn't take it at the time because I was in kind of a long-term relationship. It, I didn't really want to abandon that to go and didn't seem like it was healthy or flexible enough to kind of keep going through that. Uh, so I declined the offer and it was a really generous offer. And I, I knew that that's what I wanted, but I had to balance that with sort of my personal uh, life at the time. And, you know, eventually I did end up moving to a different place. So I, I, you know, less than a year away, I, you know, broke up in that relationship. I moved to Brooklyn. I started working for Cardo and then I moved to the UK. And I don't think any of that stuff would have happened had I not turned down Chicago. I would have been very comfortable. So it's, it's kind of even in trying to think about a regret, you just kind of reflect on the way that everything is contingent, you know? So that's at least mine. Yeah, mine is, um, yeah, I think very similar to both of you that I'm happy with who I am and where I am. There are things that I would like to do better or things that I would like to try, but I, I like the combination of skills and background that I have, even though 
at each step, it felt very sort of precarious and unsure. So it's hard to have regrets because if I changed one of those things, I wouldn't get to be the person that I am today or <laughs> or have the kids or the partner that I have today. So they're, they're, they're big things that I'm happy to have. But, but if there were one regret, and it, it would be more like a message, advice to my younger self, which would be to really enjoy being who you are sooner because I spent mm. a really long time feeling, you know, sometimes we use words like imposter syndrome or feeling inferior, but just mostly feeling like I, I didn't fit, that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't an imperfect fit for the thing that I was doing in the moment. And I wish that I could have just, I wish that I could go back and just tell myself to enjoy, enjoy doing the combination of things that I was doing at that particular time, just because I think I would have been a happier person. So enjoy the ride. You only get to do it once. Um, I think I might save the books that we have maybe for when we write up the notes for this podcast. And I should say for anyone who's still listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> that we, we worried, we worried when we were putting this together. One of our concerns was that we wouldn't be able to produce episodes that were going to go long enough. And so we had sort of. That was, for the record, that was never my worry. <laughs> <laughs> so we spitballed having like 20 minute episodes or 30 minute episodes. And here, I think you're going to get like what is likely to be the longest episode of the entire series, but we really had a lot to get to so that we could clean the decks and be ready for the rest of what's coming with the Glad podcast. And I think just speaking for myself before I turn it over to Danny to tell you what's coming next, that when we were trying to choose names. Wait, 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 wait. can oh. we do, sorry, 10 seconds for the main course and dessert? Because otherwise it's not a dinner party. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. What's your main exactly. course and dessert? I had steak tartare, even though probably future generations will judge me rightly uh, for, <laughs> for eating other other beans. Uh, and then the other one is I am like you, Rachel, someone who always picks up the menu from the bottom, like you do The Economist. Uh, I always look at the dessert yeah. and then pick something that will allow me, that will make me feel good enough if I also have dessert. Yeah, yeah. Um, but red velvet cake is my favorite. Oh, okay. And Levi, what did you have? Well, I've been um, working through Julia Child's The Art of French Cooking uh, after getting it uh, for Christmas. So um, I've been really enjoying trying to master my own cassoulet or a fabada asturiana. So I probably would order that because I'm looking for ideas on how to improve my own. Um, and I'm generally actually not a dessert person. I will always order a good whiskey, though. So right now I'm, yeah. I'm loving port gig. So. <laughs> Um, you know, it's interesting that you said that about the Julia Chai cookbook, because it's one that I use for very particular sets of recipes, but she, the recipes are formatted much the same way that Levi Wolf likes to write his reviewer reports. <laughs> <laughs> so what that, a surprise. That is interesting. Uh, so I, I was just thinking about that as you were saying that. I wondered, I wonder if you know that that is a thing that you do. Um, and if you don't know, you should go have a look at the Julia Child cookbook. It's written in a very, in, it, it's structured in a very useful, it's one of the best cookbooks ever, but it's, the recipes are structured in a very interesting way in terms of instructions and ingredients. Um, this was, again, another throwaway question for me where I thought, eh, I don't really, there's nothing I can say that's going to be meaningful about food because I just like dessert and starters and I don't really like main courses very much, but I don't really... And that in itself is a really interesting <laughs> answer. Yeah, I guess it feels very female to me. Just makes me a woman in a lot of ways because there's too much food. The middle part is like, is like uh, people for people with very large stomachs. And I don't know how people eat three courses. Where am I supposed to put all of that? <laughs> I like starters because you you can pick more things. Yes, yeah, agreed. that's true. Yeah, that's nice. I really agree. 
But of um, course, but you want... would like tapas, I guess. That would make sense. As long as they're not actually... We'll leave tapas. that one for a different episode. <laughs> yeah. My and views a, on tapas. And a different country. Yes. That <laughs> um, for the Patreon special, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wanted to say, before, before I turn it over to Danny to tell us what's coming next, I wanted to say that this episode, I think, really gets at the heart of for me anyway, what we would hope to be able to do with the GLAD podcast. We talked a lot about names. Naming was a difficult thing for us. And we went with GLAD partly because it was funny in contrast to sad. But when we were talking about geography, life, and data, which is what GLAD stands for, we couldn't decide about the commas, whether it was geography, comma, life, and data, or geography life. And I think today has been a healthy dose of geography life. And it's something that we hope to infuse in all the episodes yeah and i don't know levi is there any mopping up that you want to do at the end well i just thought it might be a good idea to think of some plugs so we're going to be coming out with a few episodes over the course of the next couple months we've got recording time lined up um and then as well rachel um you've decided to write this up into a post where can people find that if they'd like to read we had an idea i had an idea that i would write all of my answers up as a Substack post and also just sort of give some of this background history. And it would be fantastic, Danny and Levi, if you also did this. We're all, not only are we expert podcasters, we're also expert bloggers. And that this might be a place, if you wanted to sort of read through what our thinking, this might be a space for us to give a little bit more context to what our answers were. And I don't know, we're always very interested in engaging with with our audience. Hopefully we're going to have an audience. Um, yeah. So Danny, what's coming next? Yes. So uh, like Levi said, we have plans for a few more episodes for the first season. And the next one, which will be dropping soon, will be about things we're excited on the spring of 2023. And I think Rachel said it before, we're thinking about combining many things for episodes. So some episodes will be really introspective. There'll be a lot of geography life. There'll be other episodes where there'll be a bit more geography and maybe less life. Some episodes will be all about data, maybe. So d don't expect you know a structured set of ways for, for a podcast. The next one, though, we'll be talking about, there's a lot of stuff now that not that the pandemic is gone, but that the pandemic is somewhat a bit more in the background and things can happen in in physical in the physical world. There's actually a lot of things that we're very excited about. There's uh, many conferences. There are panels that are happening on those conferences. There are other events and, and we'll be spending some time, hopefully less than one and a half hours uh, <laughs> on on those things, hopefully to signpost them in, in case you want to join us there. All right. So, Anything else, Levi and Rachel? If not, that does it for this week and for this first or third first episode of the podcast. Uh, stay tuned and see you soon.